Good morning. Welcome to the International Power Hour. This is Jean Abshire, and I'm here with my co-host Cliff Staten, and we are going to be uh, talking about the various international news stories today. We're going to do an international news forum, and there is a lot going on in the world, Cliff. Uh, the world has changed dramatically just in the last week, it seems. So, yes. Uh, yes, uh, we have uh, some of these topics uh, that we're going to talk about are kind of ongoing, which we talked about last spring yep. quite a bit. Uh, one of them in particular, um, we, I think we did even a couple shows on Brexit, mm -hmm. and we haven't talked about that lately, so perhaps we can um, see what, uh, uh, Jean, let you talk a little bit about Brexit and where we might go with that. Yeah, so um, Brexit is, is uh, for anybody who doesn't remember or who is new to the show, is uh, the, a short form of, of Britain and exit, which is Britain, um, the United Kingdom, leaving the European Union, which is actually going to happen in right about uh, 200 days. We are, we are on a, uh, getting to a short countdown now. <clears throat> and uh, the British have, and the European Union have been negotiating uh, really for about a year and a half now um, to try to figure out how that exit will take place because um, severing a deep political and economic significant economic and, poli huge. and political ties. Yes, both. Yes. Um, and so that's been a very, very rocky thing. They've managed, um, it seems, to work out some issues like the status of, <clears throat> excuse me, EU citizens uh, living and working in Britain, but there are still a lot of sticky things, um, not the least of which is probably the trickiest of them, um, the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. Northern Ireland is part of the territory of the United Kingdom, Britain, um, and then the Republic of Ireland is a, is a separate country. And so trying to um, have what was previously, or what is now actually still, uh, a, a a border that you you don't really don't even know what you're crossing it other than to see a sign some of our audience may remember we had our chancellor exact who is talking. from northern mm -hmm. ireland to speak to this uh, yeah. last spring mm -hmm. yes. and so uh now with britain leaving the european union like suddenly that border in some fashion needs to be reestablished. but there's a lot about trying to keep it minimized as much as possible and then beyond that all of the rest of the trade relations between trade relations financial relations yes, investment issues uh, labor issues yes. all kinds of uh, this is this is not an uncomplicated affair it is tremendously complicated i think f more than more than most certainly more than most us americans realize and and maybe more than Maybe more than more, most Britons realized. Um, so you say <clears throat> 200 days? It, yeah. It seems to imply they're maybe close to getting well, some agreement they on paper? haven't been, actually. In fact, um, just a couple of weeks ago, um, it came out in the news that, um, like, you know, the government, police, hospitals were, um, you know, basically preparing emergency plans for kind of chaos, actually, um, if, if there wasn't a a plan in place, including like the stockpiling of medications, because suddenly they were concerned that medications may not be um, <clears throat> smoothly imported into Britain, and also even food. Um, and so, I mean, when you get to the point of having conversations about stockpiling food and, and medications, that's a crisis situation. But actually, just yesterday, um, it came out that uh, there might be actually progress. 
Um, it hasn't been officially announced yet, but word is that um, the British and the, and the EU officials are preparing for a special summit to sign a Brexit deal in November. Now, they're not saying that everything's worked out, um, but the fact that, um, again, reportedly, they have uh, enough confidence in that they'll have something uh, by November um, that they can get, you know, things done in the next six to eight weeks. That's uh, a bigger sign of hope than we've seen in a while. So this would be a tentative agreement, uh, agreement in principle, on principles we in terms no of, of Brexit? or Because clearly it's not going to be all the details. Oh, no. No, it's sure not, because okay. that's, but, but they need to get some, some big but principles down But this would be an agreement in, in, on the basic principles uh, guiding the, the, the British exit from, yeah. from and this the is, EU. Yeah, and this is tricky, because, um, le well, I mean, honestly, until, well, I say until, but is, is that even an accurate word? Um, but I'll stick with until. Until last July, the British didn't even have a set of principles for them uh, for their own negotiating side um, and then last um, early last July um, Prime Minister May and her cabinet uh, went to a like a retreat for a few days and at the end of that they announced or they I, I mean they published actually a three-page doc just a three-page document for all of this complexity outlining their basic principles which um, resulted in chaos actually uh, uh, define uh, chaos well several of um, Prime Minister May's cabinet members uh, very prominent um, pro-Brexit people, including um, Boris Johnson, who was the, f uh, the foreign secretary, like our secretary of state, he resigned. Also, um, her cabinet member in charge of Brexit resigned because um, they couldn't, even though, like, in theory, the whole cabinet was behind this, uh, you know, plan, again, announced in July, uh, they weren't on board enough. And since then, um, including, like, just within the last few days, there has been significant rebellion within her party. Um, in the last few days, I have seen numbers of, um, you know, 50 to 80 conservative party members who are clearly um, in revolt in terms of, like, planning to remove her as prime minister. Wow. Yes. So in fact, last weekend, actually, Boris Johnson. The, have the, they gone public with this? Um, there members? Um, well, just this last weekend, Boris Johnson actually said that the prime minister's plan uh, was, and, and this was, I mean, I think this, uh, the wording was was regarded as troubling within many within or from many people within Britain, um, just in terms of uh, the semantics of it. Um, Boris Johnson, again the former foreign secretary, foreign cabinet member, um, said that uh, Prime Minister May's plan was like strapping a suicide vest on Britain. That's very inflammatory language, obviously. Um, and he faced a lot of criticism for that. But it just, I mean, day before yesterday, yesterday he was saying no deal would be better than what she has proposed because what she has proposed, um, according to her critics, again, including some very prominent people in her party, um, it's not a true enough Brexit. It's, it would still leave Britain t really tied they argue, um, to the EU. They also have been arguing... So the criticism is largely from those that want a real cl a clean They want a hard, break, yes, a, a clean, hard, yes. hard break, whatever term you want to use. The clean break, clean, clean Brexit, clean break is, is the term that's being used. And the um, clean break folks um, from Prime Minister May's own party have been putting out um, arguments for how... 
um, like economically this could work out. But, you know, there have been numerous fact checking things that I've seen and, um, you know, researchers and, and, you know, academic analysis, a lot of different folks looking at it who say that their numbers are just bogus, that there is no reason to believe that the numbers that the pro-clean Brexit people are putting out there, that they're not sustainable in terms of the effects of, of Brexit, a, a, a clean we're, we're just done Brexit on the British economy. Um, Britain's economy is, you know, imports and exports are huge from the European Union. Um, and so you have, um, again, a huge, a huge a lo- I mean, a, a very significant... So the significant- fear is that a, a clean break, what these folks want, is se- severely going to hurt the British economy. That has always been the projection, and, actually, and yes. And the numbers seem to bear that out, at that least has not most, most analyses. That, right? I mean, the overwhelming <coughs> bulk of the analyses. And, and again, fact checkers have have looked at the, you know, the argument of those who, who are like, no, no, it'll be fine. It'll be a good thing. And, and, and it just doesn't hold up. So it seems to me this dispute, dispute um, is, could affect uh, the promise of some type of interim agreement by November. I don't, I'm, well, if um, you can't agree in principle within the major party that's supporting Brexit, how can you come to the table with a set of principles to negotiate with the EU? This is a super dynamic thing. And again, if they really are concretely planning, which is what some reports indicate, uh, you know, to oust Prime Minister May, that would throw the potential plans for a November agreement into complete disarray. Now, I have to say, uh, again, that the the November summit has not been formally announced, and it is possible, I think, that um, the announcement of that could be, well, sorry, the the leaking of that, you know, the discussion of that, um, uh, that that could be an effort by the European Union to help Prime Minister May. Um, There may be some you know, political strategy going on there um, to try to, to try to (laughs) literally help her out because I don't, I mean, it's not in anybody's interest, not the EU's interest, nor the UK's interest for this to be, for this to progress, you know, as chaotic, excuse me, as chaotic as it is, as chaotic as it has been, and as chaotic as it could well be. So there is some talk of the possibility of the May government falling, is that correct then? So I mean, it's a it's a very marginal thing, anyway. So maybe perhaps just for our <laughs> listeners, Gene, you could maybe t- um, people may not be how this works. Uh, how, how does a, how does the government fall in Great Britain? Yeah. just kind of briefly talk about that so our listeners will understand. It can happen in a few different ways, but um, the way that a, the way a government is actually formed in Britain is it's a parliamentary system we call it, and so um, the the prime minister, which is the, the closest equivalent to that, is our president's the political executive. Um, the prime minister is actually a, um, a member of the legislative branch, the House of Commons, um, and uh, the prime minister is elected by the House of Commons and again from the House of Commons. So she is simultaneously a legislator and the political executive. Um, and uh, that's done through ha- typically having a majority of the seats in the House of Commons, which um, the uh, Conservative Party had uh, when the Brexit vote occurred. And then Prime Minister May uh, made a really bad 
uh, political calculation. She thought that she could strengthen uh, the majority of her party, and so she called an election, which the prime minister has been able to do un, um, conventionally, and that's been restricted in the last few years, but it can still happen. In 20, so in 2017, they had another election, and she actually lost her majority. Um, she came up, I think, uh, uh, I want to say 12 seats short of having um, a majority. So she, so had, she to had to form, form a an agreement. Government. Yeah, with and, and the group that she, the party that she ended up forming one with was a very conservative, very traditional, um, fairly right wing political party from Northern Ireland. We're back to that border thing. Yes. Um, and they absolutely do. I mean, they're fine. Her, her coalition partner is fine with having a hard border. Um, no one else is. Um, but they have they have really restrained her abilities to act. And now, again, she's facing um, rebellion, more open rebellion from within her own party. So the only thing that it would take would be for um, her own party to basically vote a new party leader. She is the leader of the conservative party. um, And if they uh, lose confidence in her, they can choose a new party leader and she would be out. And that is how most um, prime ministers who are not who's, who uh, whose parties you know are are still dominant in the parliament. That's how most of them are ousted. That's how Margaret Thatcher went. Um, Tony Blair of the Labor Party went. Um, that was kind of an agreed upon deal, but you know they just get replaced as party leader. Um, now Theresa May only became prime minister really because no one else wanted the job. All of these pro Brexit leaders, uh, once push came to shove, were like, no, I don't want that job, Um, which is sort of ironic. Um, So I think, you know, one of the questions that ought to to be there is who actually wants it now, because these people have already, like Boris Johnson, have already taken a pass on being prime minister through this process. So has he changed his mind? Does he want it now? I mean, literally, she got it because no one else wanted the job. Interesting. They don't want to take the heat, in other words. Right. Well, it is a very difficult thing, so. and um, it is an easy, easy setup to fail. Okay. So that's something to watch. And again, the, the next weeks, I think, are going uh, to be really critical. They're getting to the point where if they don't get something nailed down soon, it will be a hard Brexit. The clock is really ticking hard, less than 200 days now, just under. Okay. Thanks, Jean. Yeah. Um, so, I mean... We've been talking about the EU, um, and and the EU uh, really started as an as a the European Union really started as an economic uh, trade uh, unit organization. Um, they are also it's a free trade area, uh, right? And and they are um, that is a that is an important area for U.S. trade too. And we've had some some interesting things going on with that. Do you want to? Update. We talked about this a little bit last spring too, yes. but let's um, let's get an update on that. Just to give you some idea, uh, trade between the EU and the United States is more than a trillion dollars in goods and services in any, any given year. I mean, That's this a lot. this is this is a huge amount of economic uh, compa- uh, economic goods going back and forth here, and affects both both areas. They're both huge markets, as you might imagine. Well, we talked earlier, I think. Um, in fact, that earlier this summer, President Trump placed tariffs on EU steel and aluminum, not just EU, but Canada, Mexico, and all over. 
and uh, the EU retaliated, just as they said they would, with a tariff on motorcycles, pleasure boats, corn, orange juice, and several other things uh, strategically targeted in certain uh, um, Republican areas, so mm -hmm. to speak, here. Uh, so since that time, um, lower-level U.S. officials, trade representatives, members of, of the trade representative and members of the EU, the EU Commissioner for uh, Trade, uh, Cecilia Malmstrom, uh, have been meeting regularly for the past month, and they just ended their meetings this past Monday. And so they've tried to um, prevent this retaliation, prevent a trade war, so to speak, from going any further. And to some extent, they've been successful, quite honestly. But they've made no movement on terms of, of removing tariffs at this point, but they haven't gone any further in terms of retaliation. Of course, President Trump hasn't intervened yet. So Well, and that is something, because one thing that we have seen since President Trump began announcing tariffs was, um, you know, repeated cycles of tariffs and retaliatory tariffs and then more tariffs and then more, more especially with China, um, but, but, and Canada as well, actually. I mean, escalating and increasing tariffs have been a feature of, of you know, politics in the last uh, now we, year. Yes, absolutely. And we know that the president has always wanted quick deals, and he's, he's not getting what he wants here. And right. um, uh, the, the folks I read at the Peterson Institute that studies international trade, uh, they're quite clear that the, the EU are tough negotiators when it comes to trade. The U.S. has... They're a bigger market than the U.S. Oh, I, mean, yes. they, I mean, I think that's important for people to know. We think of ourselves as being this, you know, economic behemoth, and we are. But as a block, they are actually significantly larger. Yes. And yes. that gives them power. And if you look at what they talked about the past month, one issue, um, our um, a trade representative, Robert Lighthizer, has wanted to talk about agricultural trade between Europe and the United States. Mm -hmm. Well, basically, he's met a brick wall from the EU there. Agriculture is one of the dominant lobbyists in the EU. They're extremely powerful, whether it's farmers, agribusiness. Uh, and this goes all the way back to, you could see it was evident in 1947 when mm -hmm. the General Agreement on Trade and Tariffs was passed, in which this was designed to reduce tariffs but agriculture was off the table. And you see the impact of the, far, quote, farm lobby in Europe and even the United States. I mean, uh, both, both areas heavily subsidize agriculture. Yes. The U.S. would like to open up Europe to more agriculture from the United States, and they basically met a stone wall from the Europeans here. Um, a lot of European countries, despite being service-based economies, still do have significant significantly powerful agricultural lobbies, yeah. The, the EU has, has brought up issues involving non-tariff barriers, especially on cars, things like... Uh, so what's we, a non-tariff barrier? Anything that's not a tariff. Tariff, for example, uh, we require certain types of bumpers that meet our standards of cars coming from Europe into the, or anywhere into the United States. Just like and safety it, standards. And it raises the yeah. cost of those. That's, that's a non-tariff barrier. Even the type of seat belt that we require raises the cost, and they've wanted to talk about that. And for the most part, as I said, there's been very little progress on any of these issues. But I guess the good thing is that there, has been, there hasn't been any escalation of, uh, of, of, uh, of tariffs being placed upon each, other, each other's goods here. Uh, it is interesting to note that 
in August, and it didn't get a whole lot of publicity. It's interesting that the EU made a proposal to the United States that it would cut tariffs on all U.S. vehicles coming into the EU mm-hmm. if the U.S. would end the tariffs on its steel and aluminum. And um, Trade Representative Lighthizer basically rejected and said that's not, that's not good enough. So I find that, you know, uh, that was a significant that's a big uh, gift. Uh, uh, gift to the United States mm-hmm. that, uh, that the Trump administration basically balked at. But I guess, as you said earlier, the important thing is that um, um, the tariffs have not, there hasn't been retaliation, they haven't gone any further, and um, we'll see. We'll see where that where that takes us uh, in the future here. Yeah, the tariffs as they are are costly. I mean, I think we shouldn't play down that. Absolutely. Um, we can see within our own twenty five percent tariff. On uh, that. Yeah. You think for every hundred dollars that you're paying so now, one hundred twenty five. Exactly. I mean, anyone can do the math there. So. Yes, and that's you know um, construction. That's a lot of different. You know, a lot of manufacturing there um, that is that is affected. Um, so it's good that it hasn't gotten worse, but. But it's still but they did leave on a promising note, agreeing not to escalate trade issues, and would come back and discuss it again. Of course, President Trump has yet to publicly weigh in on on all of this. So, so. another dynamic situation to watch. All right, I think we're going to take a short break right now. So the International Power Hour will be right back. Hi, we're the Goo Goo Dolls. We're fortunate that we can give our daughters everything they need to grow and learn. But not every child can focus on classes and play dates. Nearly 13 million kids in the U.S. face hunger. That's one in six. School lunch might be their only meal each day, and it's heartbreaking to imagine any child going to bed hungry. We're dreaming of a perfect day when kids can smile, play, and just be kids without worrying about where their next meal will come from. Feeding America is working to make that perfect day a reality. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste. That food is given to families and children in need. Being a kid should be about doing things that make an ordinary day extraordinary. Learning to play an instrument, building a sandcastle, hosting tea parties. Hunger should never be an obstacle to growing up. You can help end childhood hunger in your community by visiting feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Welcome back to The Dog Show. Up next, we have Satchmo. Satchmo is a member of the Shelter Pet Group. That's right, a group known especially for their couch-snuggling, ball-chasing, face-licking, and, of course, companionship. Now, let's see him in action. Look how he makes eye contact with his person. That's actually known as the treat stare. How intuitive, and now he appears to be excitedly turning in circles. Ah, the happy dance will come in with this group. But really, the best way to know an amazing shelter pet like Satchmo is to meet one. Visit theshelterpetproject.org today. Adopt. Brought to you by Maddie's Fund, the Humane Society of the United States, and the Ad Council. The International Power Hour is brought to you by the International Studies Department at IU Southeast, where you can prepare for your global future. More information online at ius.edu slash international studies. The International Power Hour is brought to you by the Department of Political Science at IU Southeast, studying power in all its forms and places, offering multiple tracks in political science and public administration. More information online at ius.edu slash political dash science. Thank you for listening to us today. Um, We have been talking a little bit about Brexit and trade with the EU. 
And perhaps there's been a couple, uh, an election in Sweden. We don't talk about Sweden too much, but it is significant because of uh, particular parties gaining more power than people expected. How about that, Jean? Yeah, so this last weekend, Sweden had um, a major uh, parliamentary election. Um, they have a parliamentary system just like Britain's. And um, it was being really closely watched because Sweden has been a very stable um very centrist democracy. Um, you know, a little center left a lot. They have a strong social democratic uh, history, but um, they all, they have been very, very welcoming of immigrants. They've taken in, um, you know, some of the largest numbers of immigrants within the European Union. And, um, you know, as we've seen in some other places, that has resulted in some social tensions. And so uh, what was being closely watched was a right-wing anti-immigrant, um, very nationalist party called the Sweden Democrats to see how they would do. And they did get uh, their highest ever vote score, which um, they came in with 17.6 percentage of uh, percentage of the vote, which is uh, which is very high um, relative to what is to what is normal. Um, it was being very closely watched. It is actually um, a, a worse performance than they were predicting. Um, they themselves, the Sweden Democrats Party and a lot of pollsters uh, thought that they might actually get up around 25% of the vote, which would have been almost a doubling from what they had been at. So this was for the National Assembly? Yes. Okay. okay. Um, and so they did, they did better than they've ever done before, although um, it was a weaker performance than, uh, and th again, than some predicted. But to see this sort of, you know, right-wing nationalist uh, party, you know, doing unprecedentedly well in Sweden is something that has captured a lot of attention. Um, one thing I think that's interesting, though, and this is something I haven't actually seen a lot of discussion about, um, is that, um, I mean, again, it, it, it's noteworthy that this, this party has done better than before. But what has also happened in this election is that the two main well-established parties dropped um, by about six percentage points in their collective support. And three other parties, the ex-communist left, um, the center party, and then a center-right Christian Democratic party, um, put on an additional collective six and a half percent. So we see the center, the traditional parties weakening. We see smaller new parties, not only the extreme right, but a variety of new parties rising. Um, and that actually mirrors what we've seen in a number of the European countries um, in the last couple of years, including in Britain, where the Conservative Party and the Labour Party, the two traditionally strongest parties in the last election I mentioned May, did worse than So there would be a greater expected. reliance on coalition governments? Yes. Um, and um, as we know, in coalition governments, quite and often, as I've put it in class, the, the, the tail often wags the dog, so to speak. Yeah, and often, I mean, the smaller parties within the coalition can have disproportionate, relative to their size, disproportionate influence. It can also be just harder, to, I mean, it depends on the dynamics, but it can be harder to govern because if, if those little parties are really trying to use all their leverage, um, that can... And if you end up with, like, you know, more than two parties in a coalition, that gets increasingly complicated, and that does sometimes happen. But we've seen a weakening of the traditional parties in Britain, in France, in Italy, now in Sweden. And the, the, the parties that have, have sort of 
and Germany as well. So, um, the parties that have have gotten stronger in those contexts have varied. It hasn't all been right-wing parties, although they've certainly got a lot of the attention. But this is a Sweden's. Um, you know, recent vote does fall into sort of a of a, a, pattern. a pattern, but a kind of a concerning one. Which we're going to talk about on a, a show coming up. We are. With um, one of our former graduates. Exactly. Um, Carolyn Morgan, Dr. Carolyn Morgan, will be with us um, in <clears throat> mid-October to um, talk about her work on right-wing extremism and right-wing political parties um, within Europe. And there is a lot to talk about. Yes, Carolyn um, has her PhD from Ohio State. Exactly. Or I guess the Ohio the State. Ohio State, yes. <laughs> um, we also have another development on the right-wing politics front um, in Europe this week, which is uh, um, interesting and also unprecedented. Um, there have been a couple <coughs> of uh, countries um, among the, the newer EU members, the former um, Eastern Euro Central and Eastern European countries, specifically Poland and Hungary, who have seen significant declines in their level of, of democracy in recent years. How, how do you, how do we know that, I guess, is how, how do we measure that? Well, in, I mean, we look at events. Okay. Um, and in Poland's case, for example, um, we have seen the government, which is engaged in a lot of, you know, right-wing nationalist rhetoric, anti-immigrant rhetoric, but also um, it's, you know, it's not just that, it's also what they have done um, in terms of, of their own power, um, government power, you know, vested in the, you know, with, with their one dominant party. In Poland, they have really, really um, uh, undermined the independence of the judicial branch. And that's really in, in which is crucial in terms of any yeah. any democracy that's going to function well. You have to have an independent judiciary. Exactly, somebody has to be monitoring and able to hold the legislative and executive branches um, accountable for f fundamental democratic principles. And Poland has has seriously undermined that. And then in Hungary, so they've already been, you know, getting scrutinized by the European Union. Um, and and Hungary has also gone down a similar path. And they have done things, um, also a lot of anti-immigrant, very nationalist rhetoric. Um, but beyond that, um, there have been very um, strong attacks on the media. They've undermined the rule of law. They've um, uh, hampered competitive elections by undermining the opposition, harder for them to get media access and things like that. They've targeted universities and, and other elements of education. I mean, there's been a really strong um, increase in authoritarianism within Hungary. And it kind of actually came to a head uh, well, actually, there was breaking news this morning on this. Um, the European Union requires of its members that they adhere to democratic values and democratic processes and procedures that go with that. Um, a country cannot be admitted to the European Union without having democratic processes and procedures in place. So I'm assuming then they can be sanctioned if they fall below those standards. Is that correct? Well, there is a provision for that um, in one of the more recent EU treaties, actually the same one that permitted Brexit. Um, it's never been done before, but um, 
because of Hungary's behavior, uh, they are they have actually, as of today, initiated a sanctioning process against Hungary. It was debated um, yesterday in the European Parliament. Hungary's Prime Minister, Viktor Orban of the Fidesz party, um, came to the European Parliament and, you know, answered charges against him and his party. Um, he said it was the Europeans. Uh, the EU scrutiny was insulting to Hungary and um, challenged them for actually undermining, the, challenged the European Union for not respecting Hungary's democracy. Um, but despite that, the European Parliament today voted to recommend to another branch of the European Union to examine, to basically begin a process that would examine Hungary's behavior and, you know, what it's done uh, with an eye toward sanctions. So this and examination will be taken by the Commission, European yeah, Commission? Uh, it, it's going first sure. to the Council of Ministers, okay. Um, okay. which is um, the uh, political leadership um, right. of, of a variety of the countries. But th the fact that the Parliament did this is a little bit surprising because um, Orban and Fidesz have gotten a lot of support from certainly far-right parties within Europe, which are, tend to be over-represented in the European Parliament, um, but also even, um, you know, center-right political parties. Fidesz is, uh, is in... Uh, the center-right political party grouping in the European Parliament. But even they were like, nah, you've gone too far now. Um, we saw... Uh we saw Hungary being supported by Poland and also Italy, which their new government, we talked about that, yes. um, is, is farther right. But um, Austria's uh, Prime Minister, Sebastian Kurz, who is, you know, uh, sort of also technically in the center, in the center right, but realistically has pulled the, that party farther right. Um, he said that Hungary had gone too far. So we do see even from um, Orban's uh you know, past allies, some some backing off on that, and a greater willingness to to be openly critical. Now, is the European Union actually going to go ahead and sanction Hungary, which would mean taking away, in the worst case scenario or the most extreme scenario, taking away Hungary's voting rights within the EU? You know, frankly, I'd be surprised if it came to that. But the fact that the EU has initiated this process is some a investigation. Mm -hmm. I know. I'm assuming a report will be generated yeah. from these findings. And, yeah, and, and there's then, a lot to be critical of. Then objectively. we'll see. We'll see what happens. Yes, yes, exactly. So, yeah, we'll talk more about that probably when we have Carolyn on. But, but it's this is happening, you know, right now. So I wanted to kind of mention it. Um, Another thing that we've talked about in the past, which has been a weird and mysterious thing, um, have been sonic attacks on uh, U.S. embassies. We talked about it in Cuba a little bit more, also mentioned it in the past that it had happened in China. Um, but there's new news on that, Cliff. So why don't you why don't you give us an update on that? Well, as you may know, may know um, over the past year and a half, 26 U.S. diplomats and intelligence officers in the U.S. Embassy in Havana have basically been subject to what was originally called sonic attacks, and they indicated that they heard uh, strange sounds, buzzing, ringing, uh, some of them called it a grinding sound, a sh very shrill sound, coming from a specific direction. And they suffered injuries from this. Hearing loss, memory loss, dizziness, nausea, uh, many symptoms typically associated with a concussion and brain injury. 
and uh, they suffered them, uh, many, um, some of our diplomats in Havana actually live in houses in Havana, and they suffered, the, uh, they heard it in their houses, and some live in hotel rooms, I think uh, some in the Hotel Nacional, uh, also, this is where this took place. Actually, didn't take place in the embassy itself. So, uh, and they were brought home. Uh, what I think a lot of people don't know, there were also several Canadian diplomats that suffered, had similar symptoms as well. So they were got, they've been brought home, and uh, have been examined and so on. And they did find effects. I oh, mean, this, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. No, this this is very very serious. And. Yeah. Uh, President Trump uh, and many in the Senate uh, blamed the Cubans initially, and Cuba, of course, denied it uh, and said they had nothing to do with it. And actually, they've worked with U.S. officials in going to the homes, going to the hotel rooms, and they basically can find nothing. Okay, so it's, it remains this big mystery, two mysteries. Number one, who did it? And number two, what what type of quote, weapon? What type of weapon was it? And I might also add, there was uh, a U.S. employee in in China at the consulate in um, you have to help me here, Guangzhou. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh, who also experienced similar symptoms? He heard it hitting his head, and it, and, and he had to come home. There are several others also that have been come home fr from that area as well. Yeah. So. Kind of leaves two Weird. questions. Who did it and what type of weapon? Well, yeah. let's look at one. Let's look at who did it first. Just yesterday or Monday, news has broken that NBC, uh, NBC and uh, several other agents uh, t uh, are reporting that five U.S. intelligence officials basically are making the argument that Russia most likely was behind the attacks. Now, they haven't charged them with them, but they said the evidence... Uh, seems to point in that particular direction. They had intercepted some secret communications. Right. Uh, the FBI, the CIA, apparently NSA, and other uh, intelligence agencies had intercepted these these communications. And the indication is that this was a very, this was a calculated and deliberate attack, which is interesting. Uh, you know, you might you might say, well, why would the Russians want to do this? Um, and well, uh, you have to remember that uh, President Obama was beginning to make inroads in terms of we normalized, we, uh, we now have an ambassador to Cuba, we've begun the process of normalizing, and this happens, and President Trump has used that as part of the reason to kind of draw back in terms of, uh, in terms of our normalization of relations with Cuba. So again, you see Russia at work in terms of trying to... Uh, uh, perhaps ch change the direction of U.S. policy and so on. Um, I mean, it, it's not illogical to think that if something happens in a country that, you know, even though things are getting better, traditionally we haven't had a great relationship, like, who are you going to look at first? Right. Um, right. So that's that's not illogical, although when, but when one it crops might up ask, in China, too, like, well, wait, that's a little that's bit right. of a And also, why field. would the Cubans do this against the Canadians? Yes. Okay. The tourist industry... Another, is oh, fed by of, Canadians. Yeah. The, the majority of tourists that go to Cuba are from Canada. This makes no sense. Uh, yeah. So, and there's there's some conjecture that if it is the Russians, maybe they're working with some uh, uh, some uh, far right wing distant Cuban groups that are opposed to uh, uh, the the normalization of relations. But we really don't know at this point. But clearly, this this is. 
the U.S. government and this intelligence agency are saying that uh, Russia is more than likely what was behind this. Interesting. And then the question is, okay, well, what, what was this? This quote, they initially called a sonic attack. And um, the best evidence at this point is that it's actually microwaves. There have been, um, um, there are several scientists, one at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, Douglas Smith and Beatrice Gloam at the University of California uh, in Santa Barbara have, and with evidence also from the U.S. Air Force, have argued, have found evidence that if you take microwaves and you shoot them, so to speak, at an individual, you get concussion-like symptoms, just like the same ones that our diplomats uh, are suffering from. And this is this is pretty much shown. Now you might say, okay, so what? Well, these microwave generators can actually be beamed from a nearby location. Yeah. And uh, so you won't find anything if you go and investigate. That's right. Their and houses. apparently, yeah. the weapon, if you want to call it a weapon, oh, it can like a weapon. be <laughs> held in one hand. It can be that small, and you can aim it at a particular person, and basically have all the symptoms, all the uh, symptoms of a concussion, wow. and. Uh, it can be mounted on a vehicle, and apparently they're they're even powerful enough that you can do this from several miles away. Oh my gosh! Uh, so, and our intelligence agencies clearly indicate that the Russians have this type of technology. Wow. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see where this. I mean, we we don't know for sure, but this seems to be the best guess so far, uh, estimate so far in terms of uh, of. What, what caused this and who who is doing this. Fascinating. I mean, it would be easy to take those symptoms and just write them off as, you know, people being weird. But well, they were very serious. I yeah. mean, some of, some, some of the oh, diplomats suffered, suffered, did suffer brain damage. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. like a, a really hard concussion. Uh, yeah, so. that's, that's scary, frankly, to me. So why don't we take a, a few minute break, a couple minute break here, and we'll return. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure, um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? It's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. The International Power Hour is brought to you by the Political Science Program at IU Southeast. Are you interested in how power is exercised by the people? Political science might be the major for you. Whether it's the political science or public administration track, you will get the skills to make you ready for a powerful career. To find out how to do this, Go to www.ius.edu slash political dash science. 
So speaking of Russian bad behavior. <laughs> yes, uh, apparently, uh, and Gene, I'll let you talk about this. In Great Britain, they have charged the Russians with uh, using a nerve agent, Novichek, against uh, the Skripals. Yeah, so... Um, it's gotten Some a lot of attention. Here, yes, yes. <laughs> we've got there's got that got a lot of attention uh, last spring and again um, over the summer when a former uh, Russian double agent, Sergei Skripal, and his uh, daughter, daughter were found uh, semi-conscious and in really bad shape on a park bench. Um, and what uh, the, you know the British government and scientists were able to. Determine was that it was uh, they were attacked with a nerve agent Novichok uh, that was developed by the Russians um, years and years ago, um, but which is, I mean, a very very serious serious um, uh, chemical weapon. And uh, subsequently, actually, over the summer, uh, a, a couple, man and a woman, uh, found actually the the perfume bottle that was the delivery agent yes. front where the Novichuk was carried from Russia to Britain um, disguised in a, a French perfume bottle and uh, the guy of the set who survived um, got it on his hands he was the one who I guess picked up the bottle and like took the lid off um, his lady friend uh, does what one would do with perfume which would be daubed it on her wrists and she died and these are just regular civilians this is people like us. These are not people who have any affiliation with Russia, no affiliation with spying, no affiliation with the British government. This is just regular folks, and one of them is dead, um, which really highlights, I think, just the, the shocking uh, irresponsibility of putting a weapon that dangerous that that doesn't just go away in you know 24 hours but obviously lingers for months in the environment to put that out in the wild where regular citizens can and did um, encounter it and die from it I mean that's just I think a shocking level of you know disregard for humanity and clear violations of international law and chemical weapon um, conventions, which we will be talking about hopefully soon um, with a chemist to figure out how chemical weapons work. But the, the new development um, in the last uh, week or so is that the British government using um, closed-circuit television footage, I mean, they Britain is an extremely surveilled society. They actually monitor like crazy. Um, and they were able to identify two Russian citizens um, who they have um, uh, determined are members of the GRU, which is a British military intelligence unit, the same ones actually that um, hacked uh, very. So the evidence against these folks seems pretty ironclad. Yeah, the British really think they have it. Um, and so they have issued formal charges against them. Um, British prosecutors have stated that they believe the evidence is sufficient to get a conviction. Um, Vladimir Putin stated today that, no, no, they have absolutely no affiliation with the, with the government. You're just completely mistaken. They've been denying that this Novichok attack was them all along anyway. But it's clear um, if the GRU is involved, there's no doubt. Orders had to come from Putin. Right. A very, this would be a very high up decision. Yeah. And I mean, especially given the nature of this attack, I think it would be, uh, you know, pretty unthinkable in that political system that somebody would go rogue and, and carry out an attack like this without the approval of Putin. Putin manages that 
you know, Putin manages Russia tightly. Um, and so he's denying it, but the British believe they have sufficient evidence. And they're taking this to the United Nations. Um, the reality is, as long as these folks, these two men, stay in Russia, they're never going to see justice. Uh, but uh, the British have um, taken action so that if they were, these men were to, for example, go to any European Union members, that those that the any EU state exactly so would, would send yes. them straight to Britain where they would. So as long as these guys stay in Russia, they'll be fine. But th but they are now kind of prisoners of Russia. They can't can't travel. Well, I mean, they could go to some places, but not. A lot of them they couldn't, um, and so couldn't come to the U.S., couldn't go to, any, again, any EU members. So they'll probably never see justice, but um, they are constrained, and it's also just, you know, um, trying to to do what you can to hold people accountable and states accountable when they engage in, again, what is clearly really, really bad behavior. It clearly violates international norms Absolutely. Well, uh, uh, that, that, yeah. that we've established for many, many years. Yeah, yes. just... I mean, I, I find it really, I mean, chemical weapons are obviously used. We'll talk more about that. But the nature of this one, I think, is, I, I find it really appalling. So we do have a little bit of good news in the world, actually, which, uh, you know, I know. <laughs> Everybody in the studio is like, what? <laughs> and I think it's sort of nice to mention it uh, since it feels like most of it's bad. So um, I'll just, uh, you know, really briefly. It's uh, interesting that they call economics the dismal science. Well, political science is also the dismal science. Yeah, I'll give the economists <laughs> a run for their money most any day, especially these days, it seems like. So I just thought I would mention, um, you know, briefly without getting too far into it, because we do still want to talk about um, Brazil today. Um that uh, we do have some good news. Maybe we should have, good news, we should have maybe ended on this note rather than coming back to Brazil. Okay. I'm not sure why I just grabbed it here. But um, we have uh, a, a um, you know, happy, happy event in Ethiopia and Eritrea um, on the Horn of Africa, so East, East Africa, that um, based on a peace treaty that they made with each other in July, um, we have, as of yesterday, um, the opening of that border, a shared border, so that um, people can move across it, trade can move across it. There's been a war going on. Um, Ethiopia is landlocked. Yes. They have wanted, they need access to the Red Sea, basically. Yes, and they've been sending some, some things out through the little tiny state of Djibouti, um, which actually there's also a new agreement with them as well. Um, but uh, Eritrea gained independence from Ethiopia in the early 1990s, and then um, war broke out a few years later, and 80,000 people died in this war. I mean, this is not something that hit U.S. news much, but this, I mean, 80,000 people dead, that's a that's a costly war. Yes, um, and, and as soon as the war broke out, like that that border locked down. I read of some guy who had like gone to visit family. He was Ethiopian and gone to visit family in Eritrea and he's not been able to come home in 20 years. Just Apparently this stuck. is a border that, that clearly cuts across many fam family lines. Uh, yes. People, uh, family living in one country and the other and 
it prevented them from visiting family members. Yeah, and and again, like there were people who were who were visiting family and got stuck on the wrong side of the border and uh, you know couldn't get home, which is. I mean, 20 years later, they can finally go home. So that's a big deal. It is um, a big deal, yes. It's also um, uh, a little a little bit important symbolically, as uh, yesterday was also Ethiopian New Year's Day. Um, the Ethiopians, as it turns out, um, which I actually didn't know, um, but the Ethiopians operate on a calendar similar to the Julian calendar, which um, Western countries stopped using in the 1600s. But um, I wasn't aware of that either. I didn't so. know that either. So to Ethiopians who are just um, entering Happy 2011. <laughs> In 2011, Happy New Year, <laughs> exactly. And to celebrate that, again, um, an opening with, uh, with the neighboring country of Eritrea. Um, so that's good news. I mentioned Djibouti. Eritrea and Djibouti actually signed a peace agreement on September 6th, so also very recently, um, that, that um, ended a decades-long conflict, or a decade-long conflict, just one decade, uh, between uh, those two countries. So we've got three countries nestled right there together, um, with very strategic in terms of the Red Sea yeah. and out into ultimately into the Indian Ocean and so mm -hmm. on and so forth. Yes, yeah, that's a very very strategically important area uh, militarily too, um, but but especially for trade. Sure. Yeah. So so it's nice to throw in some good news. Um, but in our last uh, you know five minutes or so, what's been going on in Brazil? Well, we, we've chatted a little bit about Brazil earlier in one of our shows, but um, Brazil's having an election next month in October. And uh, um, let me kind of give you some background a little bit about Brazil. Uh, the political system uh, is extremely fragmented. There are at least 35 major parties. That's a lot. So all governments are coalition governments. You have running for president nine major candidates. And like in many countries, um, there, will there will be a runoff election, which means that you, you have to get 50%. And right now, the leading candidate only has, the polls show, 24%. And the best a candidate has ever gotten is, is close to 40%. Mm -hmm. So there's going, there will be the top two vote getters will get, will be in a runoff election. Okay. So, <coughs> excuse me. So, <coughs> so that's where we are in terms of, of what's going on. But why is Brazil significant? Well, why should Americans even care? Well, if you look at Brazil and South America, it's half the population, half the territory, half the economic output. It, it is a major economic power. It is self-sufficient in oil and gasoline. It's a huge, and it's a major weapons supplier, mm -hmm. uh, the largest military in all of South America. In fact, it's, uh, you take all the militaries of the other countries combined and, and, and Brazilian military. Plus, we know that in recent years, China, and we've talked about a little bit mm -hmm. about uh, what I would argue, uh, Trump's withdrawal, U.S. withdrawal from world leadership. And when, when powers withdraw, other countries will seek to fill that vacuum. And China is really doing this. And they're making big inroads in Brazil. Since 2003, China has invested $47 billion in Brazil in 87 major industrial, industrial uh, uh, prof projects. Uh, so they're, they're, they're 
developing this strong relationship with them. So anyway, so that, that to me is why it's extremely significant. And so we're having this election, nine candidates, the current leader in the polls. Remember, this, is fought, this election's coming after the worst recession yeah. in 30 years in Brazil, massive corruption scandals, uh, one of the more famous politicians, a man by the name of Lula, Luis Inacio Lula da Silva of the Workers' Party, who was running for president from jail. And it was, he was just told by the, by the Supreme Electoral Council, no, you can't do that. So his vice presidential candidate, Fernando Haddad, is now on the ballot. Uh, it's interesting. So he was, he, he was found corrupt, and he's, he's probably the most famous and most uh, uh, liked politician in Brazil. Yeah. His successor to the presidency, Dilma Rousseff, was impeached for corruption charges. So you've got all these corruption charges, people in jail, uh, an impeachment. The current president, uh, Michael Temer, uh, who was vice president under Rousseff, uh, was has historically kind of, he, he's with the uh, smaller party and has played the the kingmaker so to speak since the 1990s in terms of building coalitions with with the uh, ruling party here. He um, um, so the leader is a man by the name of Jair Bolsonaro. If you'll excuse my I'm not I'm not uh, I don't speak Portuguese it's really so hard. anyway. <laughs> It is. Uh, he is the right-wing candidate. He is currently, at least if you follow the major polls in Brazil, has 24% of the, of the vote. Uh, he was recently stabbed at a campaign rally. He is going to survive. And it looks... Assassination attempts, though. I mean, that's, yes. like, that's a serious thing. It is. Yeah. But it looks like he will survive. And uh, the question then is, is who's going to come in second place in the election? And the surveys seem to show that despite the fact that Bolsonaro is a leading candidate right now, in a runoff election, more than likely he would not win, at least, yeah. at least if the surveys indicate that. So it's important then that I think we follow this election because it can have dramatic, in, uh, dramatic impact in terms of the United States. Remember... Brazil does export steel and aluminum to the United States. Yep. So Interesting times. There's a lot going on to watch. Um, well, we are just about out of time, so I would like to thank everybody for listening to the International Power Hour. Next week, we are going to be talking with Dr. Veronica Medina about microfinance, which is a way to uh, try to ameliorate poverty. Um, Should be a good discussion. Empowering local people. My students who have had me for international political economy should be well-versed in this and should be able to... Uh, listen in and, and understand what's going on. Excellent. So thank you all for listening. You can follow us on Facebook. You can find other podcasts on our website or on iTunes or Stitcher. Thank you very much for listening to the International Power Hour. You're listening to